Fossil fuels are in low supply. There's an energy crisis. Polar ice caps are melting, and the weather has gone to extremes. Plants and animals are dying at rapid pace. Humans, living in abject poverty, are warring over the few resources they have left. This is the setting of Ernest Cline's science fiction novel, Ready Player One, where human civilization is in decline and virtual reality inside of a video game beats any day in the real world. Welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast, folks. My name is Jenny Abamu, and I'm your co-host. I'm super excited today because we are talking about sci-fi and how science fiction novels like Klein's book impact our reality today. I have two awesome guests who are ready to geek out this afternoon. Stay tuned. Okay, listeners, so today we're talking about this page-turning novel called Ready Player One. It follows a geeky protagonist named Wade Watts as he's on a mission to win billions by finding an egg hidden inside a virtual video game universe called The Oasis. Yet today we're not going to discuss the semantics of the storyline or the upcoming Steven Spielberg movie adaptation of the book. Instead, we're going to talk about the vision of schooling that Klein paints in his science fiction novel and how that could impact the way we design for education today. Inside the video game universe, Wade attends school virtually on the planet Ludus. Klein's vision for virtual schooling is nothing like what we have today. Here's a clip from the audiobook that describes the experience. There were hundreds of school campuses here on Ludus, spread out evenly across the planet's surface. The schools were all identical because the same construction code was copied and pasted into a different location whenever a new school was needed. And since the buildings were just pieces of software, their design wasn't limited by monetary constraints or even by the laws of physics. So every school was a grand palace of learning with polished marble hallways, cathedral-like classrooms, zero-G gymnasiums, and virtual libraries containing every school board-approved book ever written. On my first day at OPS 1873, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Now, instead of running a gauntlet of bullies and drug addicts on my walk to school each morning, I went straight to my hideout and stayed there all day. Best of all, in the Oasis, no one could tell that I was fat, that I had acne, or that I wore the same shabby clothes every week. Bullies couldn't pelt me with spitballs, give me atomic wedgies, or pummel me by the bike rack after school. No one could even touch me. In here, I was safe. To have this conversation about how science fiction novels like Klein's book can impact the way we design for education today, we have two very interesting educators who are working to merge ideas from science fiction novels with our reality. Our first guest is Amanda LaCastro, an assistant professor of digital rhetoric at Stevenson University in Maryland. She encourages students to draw from science fiction in the writing courses she teaches and has an entire assignment built around Klein's novel. We also have Sophia Breckner, a former Google engineer an artist and current assistant professor at Stamps Uni- Sam's School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor with us today. 
Her work teaching engineering students to prototype from science fiction has been featured on NPR, Wired, The Atlantic, and a few other publications. But she has some special secrets to share with us today. We'll talk with these educators about what it takes to make science fiction into reality, not just in higher education, but also in K-12, and how these fiction novels can inform our everyday lives. Ladies, welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. Excellent. So I'm going to start by just kind of asking you both. Um, I'll start with uh, maybe, Sophia, you can lead us on this. How are you merging science fiction and reality in the courses that you teach? So I, um, for, for many years, I've been teaching a class called Science Fiction Prototyping. Um, and in that class, we um, read a lot of science fiction novels, short stories, and we watch um, science fiction movies and TV. And um, we discuss them. Um, we, we talk about um, these authors' predictions for the future and um, for how technology is going to change. And then I have students build um, functional prototypes inspired by what they've read. Um, and the goal is to really teach um, students who are going to be the designers and you know innovators um, and engineers creating the technology that we're all going to use someday, trying to get them to, to learn to think extrapolative, extrapolatively about what happens when technology scales up. So um, you know when, when you have make a design choice, thinking about what it'll mean if tens of millions of people are using it or hundreds of people are now use, or people are using it hundreds of times a day. And so um, I really want the students to understand, to start thinking about the ethical impact of, um, of the things they decide to put into the world. Fascinating. And Amanda, um, same question for you. How are you merging science fiction with the courses you teach? Interestingly enough, my students do very similar work in my English classes. They're reading, watching, and thinking about science fiction. And then they actually do prototype as well their own um, technologies. In my case, they make their own virtual reality applications. And we also prototype the future of the book. So what will the book look like in 20, 30, 40 years? But I think one of the main um, aims of looking at this through a humanities perspective is we always start with the question, what makes us human? So when we're reading science fiction, we're thinking about what is the humanity in the science fiction? What separates us from robots or what makes, what as science continues forward, what can we hold on to that is the essence of our humanity? And a lot of times that leads to really fruitful discussions about inequality and um, differences between gender, sexuality, and of course race in these different texts. That is fascinating, actually. Um, side note, you both, you, you both actually have, I don't know if you both know this, but you both actually have really interesting concepts about humans and cyborgs and the intersections of what those things are. Listeners, if you have time, I recommend that you read their uh, thoughts about that. Um, I think it's very fascinating. So Amanda, just to kind of follow up on, why, why do you teach from uh, clients' books specifically? What can um, an educators and innovators take from his description of education? So I actually came to this from the angle of being fascinated with virtual reality and experimenting with virtual reality, which led me to Klein's book. Um, In looking for texts that integrate virtual reality, I wanted one that would really speak to my student population, which at Stevenson University is a lot of first-generation students, a lot of students who may not have a lot of exposure to technology, 
um, either from inner city Baltimore or from the rural suburbs of Maryland. And I found that Ready, Ready Player One really does have a voice that speaks to them specifically. They come from these dilapidated schools that Wade Watts is in. They understand bullying very intimately and do fear bullying, um, both in physical and cyberspaces. And they also see the climate change that Ernst Klein is talking about. And they see um, school as maybe not necessarily meeting their needs um, as being limited in a lot of ways. Um, and while they may come in as technophobes, not really embracing technology fully, they can see the potential in Ernst Klein's future. They see the Oasis as something interesting and exciting, and as that clip you played said, safe for some of them to be in. Now, Sophia, you have a whole different audience, not necessarily technophobes, people who are interested in technology. Um, before I dive into my next question with you, I want to play one clip from Klein's book where the protagonist kind of juxtaposes his experiences in the real world and what's happening in the Oasis class and then, in the Oasis classes and then kind of ask you to comment on it. So I'm going to play this clip really quick. Living in Anchorage, Alaska, who had adopted this appearance and voice to make her students more receptive to her lessons. But for some reason, I suspected that Mr. Ivanovich's avatar looked and sounded just like the person operating it. All of my teachers were pretty great. Unlike their real-world counterparts, most of the Oasis public school teachers seemed to genuinely enjoy their job, probably because they didn't have to spend half their time acting as babysitters and disciplinarians. The Oasis software took care of that, ensuring that students remained quiet and in their seats. All the teachers had to do was teach. It was also a lot easier for online teachers to hold their students' attention, because here in the Oasis, the classrooms were like holodecks. Teachers could take their students on a virtual field trip every day without ever leaving the school grounds. During our world history lesson that morning, Mr. Ivanovich loaded up a standalone simulation so that our class could witness the discovery of King Tut's tomb by archaeologists in Egypt in A.D. 1922. The day before, we'd visited the same spot in 1334 B.C. and had seen Tutankhamun's empire in all its glory. In my next class, biology, we traveled through a human heart and watched it pumping from the inside just like in that old movie, Fantastic Voyage. In art class, we toured the Louvre while all of our avatars wore silly berets. In my astronomy class, we visited each of Jupiter's moons. We stood on the volcanic surface of Io while our teacher explained how the moon had originally formed. As our teacher spoke to us, Jupiter loomed behind her, filling half the sky its great red spot churning slowly just over her left shoulder. So in this part, Wade is describing all the amazing trips he's going on with his class and how, and how it's changed the teaching experience. Now, I know there's Google Expeditions and Facebook is working on some interactive avatar experiences in VR, um, but Sophia, I'm really curious, how close are we to actually having a virtual school in, like the one Klein describes in this novel? Actually, I think pretty close. Um, uh, we have a cave environment at U of M, and I actually already take the students to um, 
to experience it as part of class. And um, I've seen all the different um, virtual environments that different departments have made. Um, I but There's like a simulation to actually like fly through a human body um, to explore different molecules very zoomed up. Um, so uh, the technology is there. Um, I think it just needs to become uh, cheaper and more accessible. I actually really couldn't Whether, agree more uh, with Sophia. I have been implementing virtual reality across the curriculum for the last year. And my students fly through the human brain. We uh, go to the Louvre. We do almost everything that Wade describes in that clip. It's all already available. Um, really nothing that he describes isn't possible at this current time. But like Sophia says, it is much more uh, expensive right now than is tenable to give every student a headset. And um, there are still limits in the technology. It still gives a lot of people motion sickness. Um, there is a learning curve to using it. So the accessibility barrier does need to come down before we have you know, every student in virtual reality. Amanda, you kind of talk about, we talked a little about, about this offline, but I wanted you to tell this a little bit online, kind of the, um, the learning curve that you've seen with your students, um, particularly given the demographic of students that you work with. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So those of my students who are video game players can easily put on an HTC Vive, pick up the controllers, and run wild in a virtual uh, simulation. However, a lot of my students do not meet that description. So um, both actually professors and students who I introduce virtual reality to the first for the first time, they have trouble um, orienting themselves in the virtual space, learning how to move in the virtual space, learning how to use the controllers as their hands in the virtual space. Um, and these things are um, easy to easy to teach when you have the time and space, but when you're looking at asking a professor to take time out of their class to make this possible, you do have to think about that. So whenever I'm doing a virtual reality demonstration, I ask for 40 to 40 minutes to an hour to get all of the students um, set up with their headsets, oriented in the virtual space, and then the learning can actually begin. So it does, it is not just something where you can throw headsets in a classroom and expect everyone to, you know, immediately start the learning objectives that you're aiming for, you do need to do a little of that work explaining how the technology functions and making sure that everyone has, um, you know, the vision requirements, the hearing requirements, the physical requirements. Some of these things are still being addressed with um, in the hardware virtual reality. Mm. And Sophia, um, as an engineer, uh, I'm wondering, did you, uh, just kind of pivoting and thinking about how design, how you guys prototype from science fiction, how do you, do you see flaws with a uh, client's design or things that are just like almost impossible or like things that, from, his, from his description of schooling in the future? Um, I think one of the, um, one of the things that Klein didn't focus on is the level of harassment that exists on the internet. Um, mm. And uh, I, and I, so it, it, like, it's there a little bit, but I, I think um, considering that the current state, the current status of harassment on the internet and online bullying, I think he didn't really um, get into that enough. Mm. Um, and what, what, what mechanisms would be there to protect, uh, protect students, especially if they were in these environments. Mm. 
I think Klein says that, you know, you can just mute bullies, right? You just press the mute button when someone's harassing you. But of course, that doesn't teach a student to properly deal with that interaction. Um, you know, if we all just turn off our Twitter accounts, sure, we'd be safe, but then we're not doing the work, you know, of, of engaging with these trolls and trying to make the, the change that's necessary. So while well, the mute, the mute's kind of a, an easy out for a client to continue the storyline, but it's not, that's not really a long-term solution. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think he, he, he avoided a very difficult topic um, for the sake of the story. Fascinating. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a really, that's a really great point. I didn't even, that did not even come to my mind. I kind of thought, okay, well that, that works. And so, <laughs> but yeah, the reality of like what we deal in, even how celebrities and writers have to sometimes jump, jump off Twitter because of the harassment that's on there, even given however many followers they have, it's fascinating. Yeah. That, that, that that's a real possibility in these virtual spaces. Um, that's part of why I teach the classes so people learn how to make those leaps. Um, so, you know, you, you observe this current trend, think about what will happen um, as it scales up. How will that, pro- will that problem also be magnified? Mm. And, and Sophia, in your classes, when students are prototyping from science fiction, have you seen any patterns with the way students kind of pull from that? Um, how does, does it expand their thinking? Um, and how would you say that students, K-12 students can prepare for a class like yours in higher education? Well, um, one of the things I've, you know, been most struck by um, in my class is um, sometimes we read these um, books like Klein's, for example, um, or other stories that are more dystopian. Um, and the students uh, very often will say, I just don't see how this is going to happen. I just can't see like anything else possibly happening. Mm-hmm. And so they see that a lot of them believe these dystopian futures are actually inevitable. And if uh, if someone believes this dystopian future is inevitable, there's really not, I mean, it's unlikely that we will be able to, um, you know, ter- work towards a different future. Um, so I'm, for me, uh, part of the reason I teach the course is because I'm trying to get these students more used to um, envisioning alternative futures that are more positive, perhaps. Um, students really have to be able to at least envision them um, if we're going to even have any hope of um, preventing some of these dystopian futures. Wow, so you're saying that most of your students actually come in with a kind of a pessimistic worldview right now, I guess, and you're you're actually working to kind of counter that. Yeah, exactly. Because um, I think if you if you kind of um, if you kind of believe these dystopian futures are inevitable, you won't even try. Um, what books do you and you, you won't even you won't read? The, hmm. What books do you kind of pull from to do that? Like, what books would you say? Because I know this book particularly is a bit dystopian and it's the reality of like virtual reality is even better than the reality that I'm in. Um, So what book would you say is like a little, gives a more positive spin on it or kind of helps them kind of find the solutions? Uh, Well, actually, I think Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson is a really um, good example and actually has a completely different model of future education. Hmm. Um, And it's, you know, it has some dystopian elements, but there's also some very, um, interesting technologies in the book too that um, you know feel very positive. But actually, speaking of the future of the book, um, based on the um, interactive book um, in that in that story, my students actually built a prototype of a wearable interactive book that you feel physical sensations as you read a read a story uh, as you read a story. Um, but that 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 technology in the book um, is, I would say, one of the most um, 
interesting technologies and it doesn't feel dystopian to me. Um, just so for people who aren't familiar with the story, um, in the, in the book, there's this, um, this engineer creates this, um, this book called the primer. And it's a story that is, um, grows along with the girl who reads it. Um, so it's a generative book and it, um, evolves as she grows. Wow. And reacts to her, um, whatever she needs to be learning. Um, it's really, it's really interesting. And it's a very, one of the few, sh no, no. Um, and it's also one of the few, um, hard sci-fi books where the main character is a young girl. Nice. So I need to read that one because I'm always looking for <laughs> for different uh, angles for that. And yeah, definitely kind of trying to do some, some more positivity in our thinking process th throughout that. Um, and uh, Amanda, for your students, I know you work in higher education, but just kind of thinking when K-12 educators are preparing their students for a class like your own, what should they be teaching or doing? So first of all, um, I think both Sophia and I are saying that reading is really important, right? Um, really, though, reading um, at any level is fundamental and reading about all of these different perspectives and all of these different possibilities is, you know, square one. But then when you read, I think in the K through 12 um, arena, we do focus a lot on content memorization. So maybe you can name all the characters in Ready Player One. Maybe you can you know, tell me that he was from Oklahoma and, you know, Columbus, Ohio is where he went. But instead of focusing on those details, maybe instead extrapolating and thinking about design fiction. So what do these books inspire students to create? Can they make storyboards and sketch up demos and think about what they would design if they had a virtual future to look forward to? And uh, allowing students that space to make and and build and and design um, along with thinking about the humanity of their projects. So can I design um, a project that's going to evoke empathy in my audience? Can I design something that's going to be um, particularly beneficial to a marginalized population? Can I design something that's going to combat inequality in this space. So I think, um, again, trying to move away from just the content memorization, instead building, designing, creating, imagining, making, um, and getting back to letting, letting the books inspire new ideas. Now we're about That's, uh, interesting that, um, can I add to that? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting you said that because um, most um, sci-fi stories that I've read about the future of education talk about the um, the role of memorization becoming completely obsolete. Mm -hmm. um, and students um, and, and, and for example, I think even in um, Klein's book, but also in Fast Times at Fairmont High by Werner Vinge, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the skill that um, students need to have is the ability to form search queries. And that's uh, that's like that's what they're learning. Um, so they're learning how to find information, not um, memorizing information. I actually find the opposite to be true. I think my students can can memorize information or regurgitate information, but have very hard time formulating a good search query. Um, ask any librarian in higher ed, and they'll tell you that students have a really hard time searching for information in a library database. Um, mm, that's interesting. Yeah, and it, you know, it brings me back to Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Um, you know, if if all the books were burned, we could memorize all of the novels, but would that lead to a better future? I'm not sure. I think that there needs to be a balance between reading 
closely and understanding the content, but being able to then apply that content to what's actually happening in our real world, to ha- use that as a reflective mirror to start digging into the obviously necessarily more complex realities um, of our current situation. Fascinating. You, you, I, and I love how you guys are just throwing out these books that everyone should just take a pen and just <laughs> listen to, rewind and, li- and write them down and add them to their reading list because this is fascinating. Um, but yeah, I wanted to kind of wrap up uh, and kind of talk about what are some of the interesting projects that you've seen come out of your courses. Um, I'm really curious to know, um, I just want to kind of picture like what, what comes out of the course, like the ones that you all teach. What, what are some of the things that you would say you've seen that have been fascinating that you can kind of, um, that you can, you want to see more of, et cetera. Um, what would you say? If you, um, I guess we can start with you, Sophia. What, what, you mentioned one of the projects that you had, but what are some other projects that have come out of your course? Well, um, last semester, one I really enjoyed was um, an augmented reality piece. Um, and it was a prototype um, where the longer you spent time with an object or a person, um, you would see the actual like seconds accumulating on that person or object. Hmm. Um, so you, you're, you're kind of seeing how you invest your time with inanimate objects and also people. And uh, the implications of that were very interesting um, because part of it was uh, maybe causing you to reflect on what you um, spend your time on in life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, um, it kind of changed the value of objects because um, when you would go into a store with new objects, um, you would see, you know, how many hours someone spent time to make that object. Um, mm-hmm. But if you went into like a thrift store, you would see how much time um, people had spent with that object. And um, it actually kind of transformed old used objects into something that's, that's even more valuable. Wow. And um, so it was just a very interesting thought exercise. And the stu- so the student build, um, built a functional prototype and then also a- accompanied that with a, um, a video where um, it kind of told the story of um, of the technology and then um, explored what the technology could do in, in various scenarios um, and tried to look also both at um, positive things and bad things. Um, so in always in all the assi- all the work that the students are doing, I'm trying to get them to be more hopeful and aspirational, but not um, not without considering. Um, where things could possibly go wrong. So I always, I kind of, I came up with the term, I call it like critical optimism, you know, so being optimistic, but not without a healthy dose of criticality, you can um, predict um, when things will go wrong. Cause I think um, people, technologists right now aren't so very good at that. Mm, that's fascinating. I mean, I, and did they draw from a book for that or was that from their own imagination? How did they uh, get that idea for the prototype? Well, sometimes they direct, they take, um, sometimes they'll, exactly try to build something from a book but very often it's just learning the way the way that sci-fi authors think and speculate on the future and then just applying that to other areas so sometimes it's um you know their own ideas but in in the in the genre of science fiction wow fascinating and amanda any projects that you've seen come out of your class that you want to talk about Yeah, absolutely. So we've been fortunate enough to partner with a local virtual reality company, um, Mosaic Learning in Columbia, Maryland. And what my students do is they um, create virtual reality applications specifically intended to evoke empathy. They prototype them, make storyboards and short demos. And then Mosaic Learning chooses a winner and actually makes the full-fledged application with my students. So they're getting real-world work experience, which is phenomenal. 
But in the last couple of years, I've seen projects be particularly successful when they draw from the student's own life experiences. So for example, I have a student who works with Alzheimer's patients. So she designed an application for families and caretakers to understand what it's like to experience dementia or Alzheimer's. So you have um, the simulation takes you through a typical day of someone who is experiencing these symptoms so you can better care for that patient. Um, a couple of my students who are nursing majors created a NICU application where you have uh, an infant born addicted to substance abuse and you have to make split-second decisions um, about how to treat that infant and um, give them proper care. I had another group of students create virtual reality applications to help identify domestic abuse and um, give resources to the user um, on kind of what to do if you're in that situation. Um, and then in another class where we designed the future of the book to kind of play off of what Sophia was talking about, I had a student whose aunt suffered from ALS. So he created a book that would not require you to physically touch the book, but still be able to fully interact with the book. So you could use um, eye tracking software to annotate, add marginalia, turn pages, add notes, things like that. Um, and again, these are all the students' personal experiences are informing their design decisions and I think really profound ways. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, an engineer and a writer, uh, both using science fiction to inform their classes in fascinating ways. Ladies, thank you both so much for joining us for the EdSurge on Air podcast and sharing your ideas. Thank you so much. This has been the EdSurge on Air podcast. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jenny Abamu, and you can give us a grade on the quality of this podcast by rating us on iTunes or sending an email to us at feedback at edsurge.com. You can also subscribe to us on your iPhone podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education.